This is Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers, welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it's your first time, we'd like to welcome you to The Pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine. Because by golly, it is easier that way, and who doesn't want their doctors cutting corners? Today, Dr. John, we're going to discuss Amboise Paris. <laughs> we, we think we're pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I know. I'd like to be more confident saying we're coming out of the blocks, guns blazing with a, a correct pronunciation. But there's there is at least a forty five percent chance that we will mispronounce our lead character's name for the duration <laughs> of this episode. Listeners, um, right before this, we were on Google Translate, just <laughs> confirming what we thought was accurate. So don't blame us; blame Google. Um, anyway, Mister Perry is a French barber surgeon who made surgery less barbaric. Mm. Are you excited? Um, yes, um, I'm very excited. I have uh, uh, at the forefront of my brain, I have no idea who this is. Maybe as you're <laughs> walking us through it, um, it'll ring a bell. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the edge of my proverbial seat here. Well, that's perfect. Well, I'm going to continue to um, tickle your prostate then. We'll keep you excited for the duration of this episode. <laughs> my interest is peaked. That's right. Um, so I feel like the question on everyone else's mind is what exactly is a barber surgeon? Also, who is Amboise Paris? But we'll get to that. So a barber surgeon, you might be curious to know, is he simply a medieval hairdresser who dabbles in surgery? A stylist who performs perms and paniculectomies with equal vigor? Well, actually, my friends and fromites, that is exactly what they were. <gasps> Gasp. Yes. A barber surgeon was a person who could perform surgical procedures, including bloodletting, cupping therapy, still used today, teeth extraction, still done today, and the ever popular amputation. Uh, in addition, these. <laughs> still done today. <laughs> um, these barber surgeons could also bathe. That's impressive. Um, cut hair, trim facial hair, and give enemas. Because, I mean, who doesn't want an enema with a haircut? Great business plan. I mean, I think you have to admit that, right? <laughs> uh, <Here>. I, I, <laughs> like a fade in an enema. <laughs> like, what, what's the cleanup after that cut look like? You know how they always get the little broom out? Like, is it a broom and then a squeegee? <laughs> I, want the, I want that fade type, but keep the enema loose. <laughs> Anyway, during times of peace, they would apply their trade amongst the general population. But during war times, the barber surgeons were enlisted in the military in charge with caring for soldiers during and after battles. Physicians of this time actually considered themselves above surgery. They mostly worked in universities or chose residence within the region's castles where they treated and cared for the wealthy. You have to remember that morbidity and mortality from surgery was a bit... A skosh on the high side during the Middle Ages. Hence, <laughs> physicians would mostly observe surgical patients and or offer consultations. <laughs> um, while leaving the detachment of said limbs and other interventions to be performed by, well, hairdressers. <laughs> hey, I, I don't think the times have changed that much, personally. <laughs> what I don't you have to do your work. <laughs> 
I mean, I guess in my mind, I just picture this like barber surgeon standing over like a fallen soldier, the guys on the ground writhing in pain. And he's like, doc, how's it look? And the surgeon's like sweating over him, working hard. And he responds, not good, monsieur. Your split ends are terrible. It's ruining my perm. <laughs> There's nothing we can do for you. <laughs> We've got to shave it. Shave it off. <laughs> you get the Barkley cut. Um, well, anyway, eventually this cast system would evolve, fortunately. Um, and that story really could be an episode almost in and of itself. But for now, back to Amboise. So Amboise Perry, who lived and rocked on from 1510 to 1590 was a French barber surgeon as previously stated, who by the time he had passed away had served Kings, Henry, the second, Henry, the third, Francis, the second, Charles, the ninth. He is considered one of the fathers of surgery and modern forensic pathology. By the way, if you notice a slight pause before I said the ninth, I've got these in Roman numerals and I was having to do a little, uh, <laughs> I, I was every time, every time. Am I subtracting? <laughs> Am I adding here? What's the B mean? Damn it. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, he's considered one of the fathers of surgery and modern forensic pathology, as well as a pioneer in prosthesis, novel surgical techniques, and battlefield medicine. Perry invented several surgical instruments, which isn't that surprising considering that scissors or shears and a hairbrush are rather limiting surgical tools. <laughs> Barber pun. Um, and he was a member of the Parisian Barber Surgeon Guild. So how did Paris become a figure so renowned in the middle-aged surgical lore? Well, it was his work during times of war that would catapult his reputation. Um, surgical amputations date back to Hippocrates and were, for many years, um, one of the main functions of the surgeon. Limb injuries were the most common anatomical injury encountered in conflict. Swords and knives and spears and eventually projectiles such as arrows, bullets, cannon, as well as frostbite and trench rot all led to an amputation of the limbs. It's nice when all the doors, like all the paths lead to one door. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a pretty bad blister there. <laughs> amputation. <laughs> uh -huh. um, in another 300 years, they would treat it all with cocaine. So, you know. <laughs> one of the major problems associated with amputation, however, was number one, the loss of blood and then infection. So if the exsanguination did not get you, the infection probably would. What a glorious time to be alive. Um, as far back as ancient Greece and Rome, simple surgical amputations were performed. Uh, the Hippocratic Treatise on Joints attests to rudimentary amputations of fingers, toes, hands, and feet. It's like a child song, right? <laughs> well, Shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. Fingers, toes. <laughs> Hands but feet. don't cut off the entire <laughs> arm or leg. <laughs> Which is what was recommended at the time, is to avoid such things. Um, yeah, at that time, it had been estimated that about 80% of seriously wounded soldiers, now this probably isn't exact math, but um, died on the day of battle. Of the remaining 20%, a third of them died of their injuries after returning home. So really about 14% of those who got bludgeoned live to tell their tale for a prolonged duration of time. The other 87%-ish all went to Valhalla. Is that it? <laughs> Is that where they went in Gladiator? <laughs> no. 
What's a uh, Mad Max? What do they say? Did you see the the new Mad Max? Chrome. <laughs> I did see it. That's the one with uh, what's her name in it, right? Yeah, and what's his face? <laughs> so look those two people up, guys, if you want. Yeah, to know. <laughs> great actors and actresses. Um, anyway, fast forward to the Middle Ages, where very few references to amputation as a treatment prior um, to the invention of gunpowder were made. Um, However, with the widespread introduction of firearms and conventional warfare throughout the 16th century, the nature of battlefield injuries changed dramatically from penetrating stab wounds and blunt injuries of earlier centuries to extensive soft tissue damage and communated fractures coupled with contamination from embedded missiles and clothing. These frequently resulted in gangrene and death, so amputation was the only effective treatment. Now, it should be noted that during the 16th century, the decision to amputate was influenced more by religious belief than by the nature of the injury, as death from a limb wound was often more readily accepted than an elective mutilation of the human body. Hmm. Um, When the amputation did occur, it was reserved, as stated, for gangrenous extremities and was performed through dead tissue to avoid blood loss. To repeat that, that means they are cutting in the middle of the gangrenous limb, not above it, but into it. Um, And uh, as surgeons now know, however, this is suboptimal. Better yet, it is uh, a non-optimal approach because infection following gunshot, etc. would rarely resolve until all sequestra and debris were removed. Hence, when an amputation was first practiced, don't you yawn during my, my... my talk. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. <laughs> it was not uncommon to require additional or secondary amputations before resolution was achieved. It's a good lesson in how to make shit shittier. <laughs> <laughs> Miscalculate that amputation line. <laughs> Let's go um, back for round two here. <laughs> um uh-huh. It was also common to use fire after amputations on the limbs. This was done in theory to consume and check the putrefaction with hopes of preventing gangrene and ultimately death. Now, why cauterization was also used to stem hemorrhage and hopefully limit infection, it turns out that the uncontrolled, overgenerous, and liberal application of heat also destroyed flaps of skin that may have been useful to cover amputation sites, um, hence significantly increasing the risk of infection overall. Um, Now, it should be noted that when used sparingly, well, sorry, it should be noted that today we still use uh, cautery, but we use it sparingly with deliberate application to a specific vessel and not careless wholesale application (laughs) as described here. But uh, cauterization during the Middle Ages was often performed using boiling oil. All the authorities on gunshot wounds had taught that the site of injury had been poisoned, envenomed by the powder, and that in order to counteract the poison, they should be treated with burning oil, as alluded to above. I wonder if these were like essential oils, like lavender and tea tree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned crystals up above, right? (laughs) Um, early in Amboise Paris' career, he would make uh, significant contributions to military trauma medicine, 
Perry was one of the first military surgeons to encourage primary amputation for the treatment of gunshot wounds. And perhaps even more importantly, he was also one of the first to choose an amputation site well above the gangrenous area. Kudos to you, Ambroise. In addition, he would be the first to advocate for ligature, uh, the amputated appendage, a surgical technique that stops blood flow from a severed artery or vein using a thread-like i.e. a suture or wire material to constrict a patient's blood vessels and reduce the risk of death due to hemorrhage. Always a good thing. And he did this in place of cauterization. Um, ligature was not a novel surgical tool, however, and it was first introduced by Glenn, um, but simply wasn't utilized routinely, um, if at all, in the setting of amputation. Rather, as stated above, the current dogma boasted oil cauterization as the gold standard of care. Because you got to burn that poison out, man. That's <laughs> to burn it out. It's rest that we're just sucking it out. <laughs> um, to set the stage for our tale, um, here's a quick synopsis for uh, Perry's first European military conflict. So, friends, Italy invaded southern France, and France was pushed back. Oh boy, did they ruin the film festival? <laughs> it was they uh... it that year. <laughs> um, after what was described as a bloody flight or fight, the French, along with a young barber surgeon, Perry, had captured the castle of Villain. In Perry's biography, he describes a brutal battle to retake the French castle. The Italians had dug trenches and made fortifications, and there were many losses on both sides. Perry describes a scene in which he was walking among the wounded and dying when he was asked by a soldier, Perry, what can be done for these men? And Perry responded, nothing. <laughs> and with that, the soldier began cutting the throats of the men in name of mercy. <laughs> it's cold, man. That's cold. <laughs> I mean, get him is some water. A, <laughs> is that early physician-assisted suicide? <laughs> <laughs> Did they have to get an ethics consult first? <laughs> um, as for the soldiers that could be helped, Perry initially dressed the wounded in the accepted fashion with boiling oil, stating that he had read in a book by Giovanni De Vigo, a famed Italian surgeon who lived between 1450 and 1525, that gunshot wounds were venomous because of the powder. As stated, it must be cauterized with boiling oil to destroy the poison. Yet with significant anxiety, Italy soon discovered that the massive volume of wounded requiring treatment exhausted the supply of oil within the camp. As a result, Perry states, he was constrained to apply in its place a digestive made of yolks of eggs, oil of roses, and turpentine. It's like a modern day aloe vera. Tussin. <laughs> Put some tussin on it. <laughs> Um, that night, Paris stated he could not sleep, fearing that by lack of cauterization, he would awaken in the morning to find all of the wounded for which he had not applied their traditional oil dead from the bullet's poison. Ambrose woke early to visit his patients, upon which he states, Beyond my hope, I found those to whom I had applied the digestive medicament feeling only a little pain, and their wounds neither swollen nor inflamed. Most of these men stated they had even slept through the night. It's like an early ERAS protocol. Uh, the others to whom I had applied the boiling oil were feverish with significant pain and swelling about their wounds. The melting of flesh did not help them <laughs> as much as was thought. 
I just love that, uh, you know, modern medicine with all, like, the nerve blocks and the pain medications and blah, blah, blah. These bros, like, had just had their legs cut off <laughs> and not boiled. And they were like, oh, I slept great. <laughs> that doctor put some egg whites on me. And I was yeah. like, Best night of sleep I had in years, doc. <laughs> and you know what the best part is? I always sleep on my arm and it falls asleep and it tingles and I hate that feeling. But now my arm's gone and so it doesn't yeah. happen anymore. Makes it so much easier to spoon now. <laughs> At this uh, moment, Perry determined never again to burn the wounds or the sites of amputation with oils. Perry was a keen observer and trusted his findings. Fortunately for many wounded soldiers, he did not allow the beliefs and dogma of the day to supersede the evidence at hand. Perry inadvertently practiced a scientific method. Now, however, treatments such as this were not widely used until many years later, until he published his first book. Here's the title. The Method of Curing Wounds Caused by Arquibus and Firearms in 1545. <laughs> the publishing, publishing date was delayed several years due to subsequent conflicts for which Perry was enlisted for surgical duty, or maybe he was in a copyright battle over the title. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Some other guy's like, oh man, he ripped off my name. It really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> the sentence I was going to use to name my book, the title was actually longer than the, the content. Um, it should be said that even with its publication, some surgeons were slow to appreciate the benefits and continued to cling to the cures of antiquity. One example is described in a conversation between Perry and another surgeon in a series of letters. Here are two of those letters. All right, hold on to your seats, guys. This letter is from Etienne Gomelin, writing to Amboise Perry. Arrogantly, a certain personage has wished to <laughs> condemn and blame the catheterization of the vessels after the amputation of a corrupt and rotten member, <laughs> much praised and recommended by the ancients, and always approved wishing and desiring to show and teach us, without reason, judgment, or experience, a new way of tying the vessels against the opinion of all the ancient physicians." giving no caution nor advice that there have frequently happened many more great perils and accidents from this new fashion, this newfangled tying of vessels, which he wishes be done by a needle piercing into the healthy part of the tissue rather than by burning and combusting that vessel. What if you were to prick a nerve? Exclamation point. <laughs> then surely new inflammation would result from the inflammation a convulsion, and from the convulsion, death. It was from fear of such accidents that Galean never dared to stitch transverse wounds, moreover using a forceps, likely once more tears the flesh while he thinks it possible to draw forth the vessels which are drawn back into their origin, brings no less pain than the hot iron. And if anyone having experienced this new fashion of cruelty and has recovered from it, he should render thanks be to God forever by the goodness of whom he has escaped death by such cruelty. And then Amboise Perry responds. <laughs> oh, is this like a rap battle? It kind of is. <laughs> um, you just got to get through the, well, <laughs> I'll just The $4 read. words in the French yeah. accent. <laughs> As to authorities, I will come to that of that grand man Hippocrates, who wills and commands the recovery of fistulas 
of the fundament by ligature, as much to absorb the callosity as to avoid hemorrhage. Galen in his quote-unquote method, speaking of flow of blood made by external cause, of whom see here the words, it is most sure to tie the root of the vessel, which I understand to be that part, which is most near the liver or the heart, or an alternative. As to that which is necessary, say you, to use fire after amputations of the members in order to consume, check the putrefaction which is common to gangrenes and mortifications, that in truth has no place here, because the practice is to amputate always the part above the portion which is mortified and corrupted, as wrote and commanded by Celsus to perform the amputation on that which is healthy rather than to leave any of the putrefied. I would willingly demand of you, sir, if when a vein is cut transversely and it has retracted itself very much towards its origin, would you not scruple to burn until you had found the orifice of the vein or artery? And if it is not more easy with only a crow beak, a forcep, to seize and draw forth the vessel and tie it? in which you show openly your ignorance and that you have your mind possessed with a great animosity and anger. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a middle-aged mic drop if I've ever heard one. <laughs> oh, man. In which you openly show your ignorance. Boom. <laughs> I might have blacked out during that because I really have no idea what the first, like, three-fourths of his, <laughs> his uh, response was talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wrong, man. You wrong. <laughs> the last one fourth I completely got. <laughs> um, in a subsequent publication, Dis Livres de la Chirurgie, also interpreted as Treatise of Surgery, 1564, Perry first publishes method of ligating the vessels and amputations. In this publication, Perry's account of his experiences at the Siege of Metz in 1552 is one of the most graphic of his revelations. The Emperor Charles V laid siege to Metz in the late autumn of 1552. Great time of year in France. Um, the Duke de Guise, uh, de Inghein, Conde, and many other nobles were in the city and determined to resist. There was great mortality among the wounded in the confines of the town, and the Duke of Guise sent word to the king requesting him to send Am Amboise Paris with fresh supply of drugs, medications for him and his men, as he feared those they had had been poisoned. Dun, dun, dun. Somebody poisoned all the medicine. <laughs> Damn some bad drugs, man. <laughs> Perry did not believe the drugs were poison, but rather that the wounded died because of the severity of their wounds and the extreme cold of the weather. The king arranged to have Perry smuggled through the enemy's lines by an Italian captain who received lots of money for conveying him. Perry arrived within the walls of Metz at midnight. He was taken to the bedside of Dudeguis, who greeted him warmly. The very next morning, I think I pronounced that guy's name differently three different times at this point but we'll ignore that uh the very the dude very they guys <laughs> <laughs> um the very next morning perry set to work he had brought the greetings of the king to the various nobles and gentlemen who were so bravely defending the city and had distributed his load of drugs to the surgeons and apothecaries 
He fell to dressing the wounded who kept sending for him from all quarters. He set one uh, individual's leg, which had been broken by a cannon shot. Damn, that would... Well, good for him for surviving that. (laughs) Um, Perry amputated an officer's leg by his new method using the ligature instead of the hot irons or oils to resolve persistent hemorrhage. I dressed him and God healed him. (laughs) Um, He returned home gaily with a wooden leg saying that he had got off cheaply without being miserably burned to staunch the bleeding. In his 1564 publication, Perry followed his extended work with injured soldiers, documenting the pain experienced by amputees, which they perceive as a sensation in the phantom amputated limb. Perry believed that phantom pains occur in the brain, the consensus of the medical community today, and not the remnants of the limb. So he's the first dude to document phantom limb pain. Did he also figure out the mirror thing, too? No. (laughs) Um, Well... You can't do it all. <laughs> you can't. Do you want to explain to our listeners what the mirror thing is? Uh, it's where they like... The therapy. Put the amputated leg in a box with mirrors that reflects the other leg. So it makes it seem like they can see their leg. And They put it the, in a box? I think there's a box. It's like a magician's trick. Um, the assistant crawls in... No, I don't know. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> It, it helps them visualize the leg as if it was whole. And by doing that visualization, um, it can help stem some of that neuropathic pain that has plagued the patient. There you go. So some more fun facts. In 1542, during the siege of Perpignan, Perry, accompanying the French army, employed a novel technique to aid in bullet extraction during a battle. Um, I haven't pronounced it, practiced this pronunciation, but Maricol de Brissac was wounded, having been shot in the shoulder. Shot in the shoulder. When finding <laughs> the bullet seemed impossible, Perry had the idea to ask the victim to put himself in the exact position he was in when he was shot. And the bullet was then found and removed by Henry's personal surgeon, Nicole Levernal. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I was about to be shot and cover my face. <laughs> um, oh, and this is a good one too. Good story. The bizarre stone experiment. It's not bizarre. It's bizarre. I think in 1567, Ambrose Perry described an experiment to test the properties of the bizarre stones. Bizarre. At the time, these stones were commonly believed to be able to cure the effects of any poison. So this is kind of medieval hoodoo, but um, anyway, Perry believed this was impossible. He was a man of science and reason. It happened that a cook at Perry's court was caught stealing fine silver cutlery and was condemned to be hanged. The cook agreed, however, to be poisoned instead on the conditions that he would be given a bizarre stone straight after the poison and could go free in the case that he survived. So he would allow a little experimentation to be performed as long as uh-huh. he was to be set free if it worked. <laughs> um, as the story would tell, the stone did not cure him and he died in agony seven hours after being poisoned. <laughs> 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 Thus, Perry had proved that bizarre stones cannot cure all poisons. Uh, Hashtag science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, do you know where the bizarre stones came from? This guy's telling the story in France, but I feel like they exist in Appalachia today. 
Oh, probably. Um, but like they're from like the stomach of uh, like cows and stuff like that. Yeah, like r- ruminating uh, mammals and stuff. They like um, would kill them and then thought that these like nasty ass stones had healing <laughs> and <properties>. mystical powers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Place it under your tongue. <laughs> uh-huh. Absorb its power. Um, so contributions to prosthesis. Uh, so one of the earliest written references to prosthetics is found in a book published in France in 1579 by Perry. Again, his experience as a military surgeon provided Perry with firsthand experience addressing the consequences of war and related trauma. He had removed many a soldier's shattered arm or leg, and he eventually began designing and building artificial limbs to help the men who had been maimed. Perry wrote that he was significantly troubled and disturbed by the fact that some of the men whom he had saved chose to take their own lives rather than live without limbs or with terrible wounds. To try to combat this problem, Perry began crafting artificial limbs. This was not a new idea, as there is evidence for the use of prosthesis dating back to the times of the ancient Egyptians. Uh, Prosthetics were developed for function, uh, cosmetic appearance, and the psycho-spiritual sense of wholeness. Uh, Amputation was often feared more than death in some cultures. It was believed that it not only affected the amputee on earth, but also in the afterlife. And that was kind of alluded to when we were discussing the religious uh, ramifications of amputation earlier in this podcast. The ablated limbs were buried and then disintered and reburied at the time of the amputee's death so the amputee could be whole again for the afterlife. Seems like a lot of work. I mean, I, what kind of condition is that? <laughs> yeah. Limit? And how the hell are you finding it? Uh, <laughs> Just like carrying a sack around your neck. <laughs> um, one of the earliest examples comes from 18th dynasty of ancient, or the 18th, dynasty of ancient Egypt in the reign of Amenhotep II in the 15th century BC. A mummy in the Cairo Museum has clearly had the great toe of the right foot amputated and replaced with a prosthesis manufactured from leather and wood. Cedar, maybe a nice mahogany. Uh, the toe showed signs of wear and tear, indicating that the prosthesis was functional rather than purely cosmetic or used in burial ceremonies. The first true rehabilitation aids that could be recognized as prosthesis were made during the civilizations of Greece and Rome. During this period, prosthesis for battle and hiding deformity were heavy, crude devices made of available materials a.k.a. wood, metal, and leather, Um, and records of ancient prosthesis can be found all over the world. Legend holds that Roman general Marcus Sergius wore an iron replacement hand during the Second Punic War, which is kind of badass. Uh, During the European (laughs) medieval period, (coughs) armored knights used iron prosthetics to conceal lost limbs. Some pirates actually did wear crudely fashioned hooks and peg legs. Um, I feel like an iron... (laughs) prosthetic limb would be heavy so enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like walking around like, why are you walking like that, Jim? Oh, no reason. No reason. I'm, I'm still whole. <laughs> like Thanos. Um, Perry's limbs were something different. He wanted them to be functional, not just stopgap solutions, both cosmetic and functional. That's usually my goal in surgery as well. Uh-huh. Um, he was an accomplished 
anatomist. And so when he designed limbs, he attempted to make them work the way biological limbs worked. When he designed legs, he gave them a mechanical knee that could be locked when standing and bent at will. He drew up preliminary sketches of an arm that could be bent with a pulley that mimicked arm muscles. Perry had the idea to use the progress in robotics that occurred in this period to create prosthesis that worked with the mechanical devices invented for robotic toys or clocks. It's like a medieval Leonardo da Vinci, who also was medieval. (laughs) (laughs) When when did da Vinci walk the God's green earth? (laughs) He was part of the Renaissance. So the Middle Ages ended like in the 1500s, 16th century, whatever. Um, Da Vinci was like 17... He was like 1600s. 1600s. Let's see. Let's see if we're right. He was part of the the Renaissance. Leonardo... DiCaprio. Nope. <laughs> He's part of my renaissance. Uh-huh. Oh, no. Born 1452, died 1519. So same. Well, this he predated. All right, fine. Staying corrected. Da Vinci beat out Perry. Uh-huh. They probably didn't hang out, though. No. Nah. Italians and French, you know. I don't know. Maybe Perry hung out with. He was nine, I think, when he died. He could have been like <laughs> a child prodigy, passing the torch. I don't know. <laughs> um. So anyway, back to the prosthetics designed by Perry. Um, his standout design was a mechanical hand. It was a hand that was operated by multiple catches and springs, which stimulated the joints of a biologic hand. His Le Petit Lorraine, a mechanical hand operated by catches and springs, was worn by French army captain, uh, a French army captain in battle. When he showed his design to colleague, colleagues, it was such, excuse me, a, a sensation that they worked up a prototype. And in 1551, a movable prosthesis was worn in battle by the French army captain. I don't know why they're not telling me who the hell this French army captain is or why I didn't do a little more research to figure out who the hell this guy was. <laughs> Anyway, the captain claimed it worked so well that he was able to grip and release the reins of his pony. <laughs> Ride that pony. Um, that would be creepyish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Perry was also an important figure in the progress of obstetrics in the middle of the 16th century. This man he dabbles in a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um he revived the practice of pedalic version, which is today known as uh, an ECV or external cephalic version. And this is when the process or so the process of rotating a baby while in utero to change the presenting anatomy. This strategy demonstrated that even in cases of a miscarriage with a breech presentation, surgeons could utilize the technique to often deliver an infant safely instead of having to dismember the infant and extract the infant piece by piece. Thank God. Um, but today we still use uh, ECV or external cephalic version to rotate breech babies uh, for women that want to have a vaginal delivery, even though there's a breech presentation um, at term. Yeah, that shit's crazy that that's still a thing. <laughs> Put a lot of lubrication on the abdomen and spin me right around, baby, right around. around. Um, So as stated previously, Perry worked in the service of successive French kings as a result of his renown amongst the military elite. And in 1552, Perry was accepted into the royal service 
of the Velos dynasty under King Henry II. He was, however, unable to cure the king's fatal blow to the head, which he received during a tournament um, in 1559. Uh, despite the outcome, I have to assume treating kings was a high-stress occupation. Paris stayed in the service <laughs> of the kings of France to the end of his life in 1590, serving, as we said before, Henry II then Henry the Third, Francis the Second, and Charles the Ninth. <laughs> and that's Ambrose Ambroise Paris. He got he got the chance to serve a lot of kings that died. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was real, probably uh, difficult real. to fix a, a blow to the head in the Middle Ages. It was not a <laughs> that was a diddle that you couldn't undo. <laughs> real Munchausen by proxy here, <laughs> cutting off people's bodies. Um, well, that was uh, super interesting. I don't think that I knew about this uh, French barber surgeon. He's what they called a French badass. Was he a Renaissance man? I don't Much know. like yourself. What makes you say that? The bucket slash boonie hat that I'm wearing for two episodes <laughs> in a row. <laughs> Doctor Guy is quite the Renaissance man, y'all. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Well, I appreciate it, as always. Um, stay tuned, listeners. My uh, two episodes will be the next ones that we record um, sometime um, within the next uh, month to years. <laughs> <laughs> I know. our uh, The deployment of our episodes has become a little more erratic. <laughs> yeah. But um, we've got, we do have two more to complete the season. Just make sure that you... You get on to Instagram, which I don't think we've posted in about three months, and just complain to Dr. Doctor John that he needs to hurry up and write his episodes. Yeah. And um, in another three months, I'll probably check that account and respond to you. Um, Follow us on uh, TikTok. We post a lot of uh, TikTok dances. <laughs> he's joking. You can rate us on iTunes and wherever you download your digital media for auditory consumption, because we appreciate that. It makes us feel fulfilled from the belly up to see those kind words. Those five stars. Yeah. Smash that subscribe button. Five stars, five out of five. That's what we And if you, if you subscribe, you'll be the first to know when those last two episodes are released. (laughs) (laughs) You'll probably know before us. Um, All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Guy. Thanks listeners. Toodles. Cheers. Stay safe out there.